Welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We've got a great guest today. Today's guest is Brian Hoffer. He is a professor at San Francisco State University at the Foothill Community College and pretty soon at San Jose State University. We had a great talk about satire, about comedy, and about his new book, Dr. Professor Regina Shoup Cuddle Esquire DDS and the Floppy Fantastic San Francisco Friday. How is that for a mouthful? It is a children's book that's available now in Amazon. And we've made it. This is the 150th episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. This marks another year and a half of straight weekly podcast episodes. That means that every week there was a new guest to talk about. Some familiar faces, some mostly new faces. And I can't say much, but thank you. Thank you for everybody for supporting the podcast and much more. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and on Google Play. Don't forget, you can follow the JMS Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also, please check out the podcast website at jmspodcast.com. Do you have any questions for me? I'd love to take them, even in the off-season. Please email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody, for... uh, once again, for, for sticking it through, I, it is a much-needed break. We'll be back in a month or so. Don't forget you can support the podcast by donating at Patreon. Go to Patreon and search for the JMS Podcast and anything counts. $1 a month, that's not so bad. And I could use all the money I can to keep this machine rolling. Thank you, everybody, once again for tuning in. Let's get straight to the conversation before I get very emotional. So here is my conversation with Brian Hoffer. Uh, Brian Hoffer, thank you for, for making it out here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looks it's been a crazy, uh, crazy Saturday for both of us so far. Yeah? Just trying to get everything together. Did you uh, did you go to the hat store and get more hats? Because I'm very curious about your I, hat I, collection. Hat? Oh, I, oh, the sombrero? One, one hat. It's just begin, one hat. One hat begins a collection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and lo- looking at myself, I probably need to wear more hats. Ah, you know, flaunt it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Brian Hoffert, I'm, I'm glad you're here. You're a professor at San Francisco State University and at Foothill Community College, so you're and, doing the two thing, which is pretty pretty common these days for a lot of a lot of professors, right? Yeah, adjuncting, and and I'm moving to San Jose State actually this fall. Oh, so you're gonna get three universities um, under your your belt? Yes, and I've moved from San Francisco State. I'm moving south because I live down in the South Bay, so it's a lot more comfortable of a commute <laughs> to be down here. The two eighty ain't that bad though. It, it isn't. It's a beautiful drive. Right. I can't complain. The, the really traffic can. isn't as bad as the one one. All of that is very true. So I, yeah. I guess I feel bad about complaining now. <laughs> no, no, that's not a good bit. But it's uh, we we had a great discussion not too long ago about comedy because you're yeah. teaching comedy. Yeah. Uh, in, in, as a part of the uh, syllabus. Yeah, so what's great about the courses I teach, I teach basic skills classes like English 1A, English 110, 114, 209, all these random numbers, but they're the freshman and sophomore courses, and a lot of times we get to choose the themes. So I often like to choose a relevant theme in people's lives, and I think about comedy being one of those things that is can be very controversial and it can also be very enjoyable so Mm -hmm. 
I like to talk about it and address it and see where do people find comedy funny? Where do they find it offensive? How can we work through and understand why something is offensive and how to communicate with others how to better solve that that discrepancy that's happening between one group who finds something funny and one group who finds something offensive. Now, straight off the bat, I, you know, I, I gotta let you know that, you know, as a co comedic performer, and there's many comedic performers who kind of feel the same way, is once they hear about comedy being taught in almost an intellectual way in classrooms, they get a little entitled about it. Like, they, because they're the one taking the risk, doing the comedy, in the trenches, they feel a little entitled to be like, well, who is this person to teach comedy? Mm -hmm. And 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 I guess a lot of them are like, well, and even comedians who end up teaching comedy, there's a little bit of a backlash inside the, the comedic community about that. Uh, but it's interesting to, when I was listening to you when we we're having that dinner uh, with mutual friends and how how you were teaching comedy and how yeah. and I realized, well, you know, it's actually a very important thing, especially in today's climate about uh, the I think the internet age has somehow change the way not only the way we we address certain situations mm -hmm. but but also culturally yeah so I, I like to I like to know pretty much like your your what was the inception of this idea to teach comedy in, in uh, university classrooms well I, I I think the the way it starts I, I'm interested in, in addressing the fact that you said that often comedians might find it problematic or um, Unadvised, if, if someone who who wasn't a, a practicing stand-up comedian were to teach comedy, yeah. that's a good point to bring up. And which I, is bullshit, if you ask me. <laughs> okay, you know, I, I don't have one opinion or the other. I can see valid sides to both of it. Yeah. And uh, often, what we addressed is how comedy, once you address its existence in academia, then it can no longer be funny. That and addressing whether that's right. a myth or not. Well, and the how thing to is, that is if you have to explain a joke, it's no longer funny. You know, yeah, kind of that, the idea. I guess people are, are going on. That that's what that's what I've talked about, and and that if you try and convey why something might be offensive, that the person's not even going to register or listen to you. So we talked about what strategies you can use if you do find something problematic or offensive. How can you communicate that with someone to be more productive with feedback that you can give them? Mm -hmm. And so I think your original question was, how did I get to this? Why why did I present comedy? Why did I decide that this would be the theme of my class? Yes. That's, that's a great question. I think it's because comedy was so important in my upbringing, especially growing up Jewish. I was exposed to a lot of Jewish comedians. Yeah. I even did a talk recently at Foothill College on Mel Brooks, nice. and I talked about satire, heavy satire, and seeing what is the difference between hate and satire. Because often, I think, in our current society, satire is being called hate, and then also the opposite, hate is being masked as satire. And how can you tell the difference between something that is satirical? And how can you tell the difference between something that is being plain hateful? Now, has this always been a problem since the inception of satire? Or do you feel this is like a new development culturally? I am not an expert enough on the history of comedy to be able to make a claim. Well, in your opinion. Yeah, well, what I did find interesting that that does have some statistical value is I used, I, I know that might be boring to some people, but I found it really interesting and maybe some other people will. Are you familiar with uh, Google Ngrams? 
Mm, uh, I'm familiar with Google, not exactly Ngrams. So Google Ngrams is a statistical measuring part of Google. It's a corpus, a body of data that's collected every single word occurrence in uh, books in English, and maybe they have beta versions in 20 other languages Mm -hmm. from about 1800 to about 2008, 2009. So it's not perfectly up to date. And you can search for any occurrence of any word whatsoever, any profane word, any fun word, any simple word, and it will tell you at what point uh, the word occurred, how much of a percentage it occurred in all of literature in that language. Mm. So I looked up satire out of interest. And if you look up satire on Google Ngrams, you can see it has a slow rise. I'm, I'm just trying to remember from the top of my head. In the 1800s, that time it's going up. 1900s it goes up then world war one comes around there's a dip and then it goes back up again and then goes up again world war ii comes there's a dip and then there's a correlation with wartime and satire it seems like not being used as much yeah the the occurrence of satire based on what i saw with google engrams just a visual look is it dips around the time with world war one world war two and other periods of wartime at least in the u.s history and i thought that was really interesting and then i looked at the most current data which isn't perfectly up to date it might be 10 years old or a little bit less and it's starting to have this downward trend and not a dip it's just a sharp downward trend Hmm. and I found that really interesting and I I thought that was worth addressing to my students because often satire is this problematic thing and satire can be so helpful it can give groups so many so, so many different groups power that don't have power because it allows them to have a voice and show how absurd something is in a culture or in politics that other people that do have power can't see. And it takes those people that do have power and it brings them down. Right. It weakens them because they get laughed at. And, and when they get laughed at, it f- makes them feel not as strong and not as powerful. It, doesn't, it takes away that imperviability, that imperviousness. Which is interesting in itself, this concept and notion, because satire and the uh, most modern... Uh, definition of comedy kind of came from the same place and that is with the Greeks how, how the Greeks use the comedy yeah. which is uh, actually more a narrative poem with a happy ending mm-hmm. but during those times that's also where satire flourished in their society especially political satire oh okay so it's is this new for you or we talked about it a little bit yeah. but I didn't go too deep into this year I like to talk about modern satire yeah. because if I feel if I go too deep into the history the students won't be able to relate or care <laughs> especially because these are non-English major students yeah so I yeah. try and keep it very present yeah. but we read through literature that did talk about that it talked yeah. about um, Italian comedy as well what was happening in Rome at the yeah. time and the development and talk about that idea of masking and how the mask would actually represent the face. And we talked about how that might have been the beginning of that idea of stereotyping. Right. We talked about archetypes and how archetypes can can perpetuate stereotypes or can be representative of characters. And we, we tried to see how it might diverge from stereotyping or how it might be representative of symbolic ideals and things like that. And yeah, yeah but I don't I don't go too in depth. I'm, I'm well, no the, historian. The, the, the point I'm trying least. to make is a, a comparison of here is the Greek society, which is known to be, for the most part, democratic, they're yeah. a republic, and, and their extensive use of satire mm-hmm. cut to modern day, where we're in the most democratic country in the world, Okay, and satire is used a lot, cause it's on TV, with The Daily Show and shows like that, mm-hmm. but in a sense where a lot of people are not, not just can't, can't uh, 
distinguish what is satire and what is not. And it's like, do you think there's a correlation since the the way we process information these days could be a factor of how people no longer could really determine, oh, well, well, that's obviously meant to be a joke. Yeah, I, I think it's difficult for people to be able to tell that in our current culture and climate. And I, I find it interesting you presented something like The Daily Show or what's really popular is Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I know everyone watches that. Even if they don't have HBO, they use the YouTube, you know, the, just the clip of the most pivotal thing that he posts. Mm-hmm. And I get most of my news information from, from the internet and from satirical shows like this, to be honest. Yeah. I don't get it from real news agencies. And I think with our generation, there's that shift, that change to we get our news from the internet and often from satirical sites because with satire there is some truth and then there's comedy made about that truth but the truth is still there the truth is what begins the joke to say that this is what the president did this is what's happening in another part of the world and then a punchline comes after but you still get that in that that initial information and there's entertainment involved and it's very easy to access and it's a whole different environment and i see that shift happening with our generation and i think because we're receiving our news mixed in with comedy and that there's not that distinction and it just starts to create this kind of muddled soup of of problems if we don't know how to address and understand how to look for satire yeah. and how to look for hate and, and be able to tell the difference between them. Right. Because that's the worry I have, especially as a performer, is at what point will people start uh, processing jokes as statements? Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, he didn't... Not only is it a joke, but it's a statement that reflects that person's uh, personality, therefore he must be a very bad person. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, and then be part of this whole machine of you know like, well you know let's let's destroy essentially not just this man's or woman's career but reputation as well. Yeah, my um, I, which is a new kind of power that people have. Yeah, in some way. Yeah, to right? to boycott something or to to bring down a career uh, based on something that's said. And and again, I, I'm not devaluing or saying that people shouldn't be able to have that power, no. but I find it an interesting change that what's so powerful about the internet culture is that every everyone can have a voice in a good way and everyone can have a voice in a bad way. Mm-hmm. There's that aspect of marginalized people that didn't have voices before. People that wouldn't have an opportunity to become popular or famous can have that voice. But also hate can have a voice as well much, eas- much more easily than before. Mm-hmm. And so everything kind of gets mixed in and you have to sift through it and, and there's this reactionary kind of separation between everyone. And, and how do you work through it? How do you understand it? How do you identify it? And so often with careers that are ruined by comments, maybe on stage, they say the phrase, I did not intend to. I did not intend to, right? That's often right. Right. The, the phrase that comes when, when they issue their apology. And so I, I spoke with my students. I try not to tell them what to think, but rather give them the tools to think. And I, I asked them, so how can you identify whether someone's being hateful or being satirical? You know, I offered that question, had them think about it. Often they would bring up intention. Hmm. And I said, and we talk about, I did not intend to, I did not intend to. And then I asked them, well, how can we identify intent? How do you know whether someone's intending to be hateful or not? And we kind of tried to get to the origin of that and see where that comes from. Hmm. 
What's the most challenging thing about teaching satire in classrooms? Uh, the the nervousness that I'll say the wrong thing probably, but that you yourself will say the wrong I thing. I think I'm and over- not the the actual subjects. Exactly, I'm overly critical of the way that I I always make sure I'm I'm not even teaching with comedy this this quarter. I'm actually doing something on power dynamics, mm-hmm. so it's a very serious subject. Is I find the comedy can be a serious subject as well, but well, there's power dynamics in comedy. Yeah, but we're focusing outside of comedy, oh, I see. at least. And and I could definitely shift it and move it towards that, but I needed a break from teaching comedy because I like trying out different things right. and seeing what works, and yeah. yeah. Um, if anything, power dynamics is a huge part of comedy, now that you think about it. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the, there is, uh, you know, two, two, two schools in some way, uh, characters. There's the American comedy hero. Yeah. Who is the guy that gets, you know, who's the guy you root for in, in a scenario. Like oh this guy the Bugs Bunny essentially, yeah. I was like no matter what happens you know this guy this guy's gonna pull through somehow he's gonna pull something from yeah. the back pocket and it's all gonna be okay yeah and he knows more than anybody here yeah so I can't wait how he interacts with others especially if he's sarcastic and whatnot then there's the more you know well known uh, British uh, comedy hero yeah where he's actually the victim you know he's he he's the guy where bad things are happening too yeah. And it, it's and there's a sense of like, well, which side of comedy are you on? Are you the guy who's kind of the aggressor, kind of like, kind of carrying the content, mm-hmm. or are you the guy receiving the content? Are, are you saying me personally, or no, are you no, just no. asking For, when you say who, just the, the proverbial who? Comedians, essentially. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, you know, they're self-deprecating. Yeah, and then there's the rest of it. Right. Yeah, definitely. And and it's interesting that you bring that up. One of the books we were reading talks about that exact idea. It calls them the non-hero. The second guy you brought up, that British comedian. That the non-hero is a character who everyone is rooting for. They really want them to win. They want them to achieve their goal. They have no tools necessary, but not having those tools to succeed, they're still pursuing their dream and their passion. And they might not even succeed in the end, but everyone still likes them and everyone's still rooting for them. And it makes it really interesting that that person has that positive spin. And then you look, yeah, you look at a character like Bugs Bunny. And in this book, it argued that regular heroes aren't funny. Regular heroes aren't funny because they're able to do what they're, what they're able to do. You know, they have the tools to succeed. They're going to succeed in the end. We know it for a fact. So the only time that a character like Bugs Bunny would be funny is when he's messing with the character that's not going to succeed. Right. It's that idea of, yeah, that the other character, something bad is happening to them. And Bugs Bunny has so much control over the the situation that it's funny how he'll just sidestep and the character will fall off a cliff or any sort of other silly thing like that. Hmm. Yeah. Now, you've studied extensively linguistics, right? Yeah, I, I got a bachelor's and a master's in linguistics. Is there a connection? Between language and, and comedy? Yes. I, well, I would imagine so, definitely. In things like semantics, where semantics comes from meaning and pragmatics with your intention of that meaning. Yeah, there's a definite role. I wouldn't say when I was studying linguistics that I focused on comedy. I would say comedy is much more personal to me outside of linguistics but there are definite connections that i I wouldn't say i necessarily pursued Mm -hmm. i just enjoy 
looking at so many different things and answering so many questions that I have that I pursue so many random avenues and routes throughout my life that might not be connected or might eventually be connected as maybe you're showing me the path, so thank you. Well, I figured a, a biggest example of linguistics being part of comedy is the use of puns. Yeah. You know, the, the use of double entendres. Yeah, if anyone Which goes... are pretty popular. I mean, there's even in Mexico, there's a school dedicated to just, just teaching people how to form puns. Are you serious? There's a... Sc- yeah, yes. When, when you say a school, do you mean like a school of thought or a physical school? An a institution? physical institution. Are you going to send me a link to that later? Because I, I will be all over that. But but if, if you're a comedian who wants to make it real big in Mexico, yeah. you got to learn how to make those puns because everybody loves them. Really? And quite frankly, a lot of people... I, th- I would imagine not just in... English-speaking languages, but multiple languages are pervy to having, like, you know, puns ingrained into their comedy. And it's like, you know, and for me as a performer, they annoy the shit out of me, quite frankly. Like, oh, great for you. How come nobody likes puns? But but people who, I don't know, it's a mixed bag. People groan sometimes. It depends. It depends really on the performance, I would say. Yeah. So, uh, actually, if anyone goes on YouTube, I don't know if you've seen my stand-up comedy on YouTube at I've Cafe not. for Scotty. I did a whole you five have, minute. You have set. yet to come back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm running it again. All right. Okay. I'll I'll I'll, ma- I'll make an effort to show up, but I won't do my five minute set on puns. That's okay. But <laughs> there, I, I, don't, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> And, and oh okay, I thought you said that's okay that you're not going to do puns. I was like, yeah, I bet you'd be okay with that. No, but but you know, but you know, I respect though. I respect puns in yeah. the sense that they because I have puns myself that I use when you're in trouble. Yeah, because in some way, they, there's great potential to bring up the energy again. And and I want to defend my puns because <laughs> really the 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 way I form my puns. I, I really draw out the pun. I don't focus on it. It's not like one-liner puns because I think that one-liner puns might have just been recycled information that you heard before. But I tell a story. And I the my punning began when I was... Um, I, I would say... I like how you use the verb there. Yeah. My, your punning. My punning began... What did your punning begin? When I was working uh, at, at UPS, I was working as a package, uh, a person that was uh, distributing packages, and I felt like I could never be myself. I could never really act out and uh, have that, that personality. I felt like no matter how hard I tried, we were always putting labels on things, so I had to leave that job. Do you notice I just yes. lied about my life and put a pun <laughs> yeah. story in That's there? That's a good one. That's funny. Yeah, see, so I... I <laughs> you didn't see that coming. But here's the thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I think this is how puns work, really. <laughs> that, that could most likely make them work is that they're very subtle. Yeah. Like, like the way you just That's said that why. was very subtle. It wasn't like, oh, you know, highlighted necessarily. Whenever I do my set and ask people's opinion, they're like, "Oh, you should emphasize the pun." I was like, "No, if they don't get it, then I keep moving." Yeah. I have a, I have a. It's very prudent. Can, can I share one more? Go for it. Well, now that now that you're expecting it, but I, I had a piece of paper so light, I was worried it was going to tear on the scale. Yeah, it will flew over my head on that one. Some people are like, "It's pronounced tar." Tar. Yeah. T a r r e or something like that. That's when you like zero the scale. See, I, I didn't know. <laughs> See, that's the thing that you got to know is, yeah. does the audience know what you're yeah. referencing? Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look at me, obviously, I don't use scales. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> if I did, that would be I, I would hate myself even more. It's self-deprecating humor <laughs> right there for the win. But, but I'm just saying, it's like, like if I knew how scales work and if yeah. I use that, I'm pretty sure I would have gotten it. 
Yeah, it's that added idea of do they have the information. But for me, I, I don't know about for you, because you're a stand-up comedy, comedian as well, yeah. is do you do the comedy for yourself or for others? You know, I don't <sighs> care if people don't laugh. I, yeah. Of course I genuinely do. I'm going to say I don't care what people think. I, but To be healthy in doing yeah. this, it has to be a balance of both. Okay, I think, yeah, definitely. Uh, it has to be moderation. Because sometimes if you're doing comedy just for yourself yeah. and use it as therapy, as many people claim to use it as for, yeah, it's, it's not very helpful as much. Because because mm-hmm. to validate your, your performance, you need laughter. Yeah. And if you're not getting laughs, but you're happy because it's, you're doing it for yourself, it's like, well, then why are you doing it? You know, then do something else that doesn't require the need for laughter. Yeah. But then there's the other side where people are like, well, I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it for them. And it's like, well, it's, you can't do it for you. You know, it's at some level. You can't you can't just, you know, make yourself accessible to everybody like that. I mean, that's got to be even even crazy to, like, completely give yourself and, and sacrifice your own, I don't know, identities and personalities. And essentially be a hack, really. Be a hack comedian if you're, if you're just uh, doing jokes that caters to others. Yeah. Because I, I think the, the perfect blend is somebody... That has a bit of both, mm-hmm. but yet, you know, has a strong identity to work with. It's like, you know who this person is who's performing. Yeah. Even if you never met him in your life. Yeah. But you get, like, you met someone like him, you know someone like You are like him or her. Yeah. Therefore, you could kind of get their point of view in the way that like, they're trying to, you know, make fun of a certain thing. That, that idea of relatability where someone's like, oh, I'm not as weird as I think, or oh, there are others like me, which makes me feel like I'm part of a community or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Now, you said that comedy is so much about your life. Yeah. <laughs> you being Jewish, of course, there's many legendary and pioneers in modern comedy yeah. in the Jewish communities. Uh, but tell me about where were you born and raised? Uh, I'm from L.A. I can get more specific for some people. The San Fernando Valley, Northridge represent. Nine one three two six. Did did you have were your parents in the industry? Um, no, not at all. My my mother was a teacher, and she still currently works at schools. And my father was an accountant. It's mm. <laughs> a good old stereotypical child. Very Jewish. Yeah. 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 He 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 worked very hard for our family, and and I respect him and appreciate him for that. Mm. Any siblings? Oh uh, yeah, I have two older brothers, one in the Bay and one in Southern California. So you're the baby. Yeah. Essentially. Oh. Yeah, I am the baby, and my other brother's a lawyer. If we're going to talk about stereotyping, <laughs> uh, well, how, since you're actual in Tinseltown in some way, close yeah. to it, and, and yeah. the and the entertainment machine, yeah, uh, was it really prevalent in your guy in your childhood? I, I thought about that. Not at all. <laughs> Hollywood was so close without traffic, which is never possible in L.A. Hollywood's only like twenty minutes away without traffic. I'm going to keep emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know it's less than an hour away even even so and i don't really remember going that much and as i got older and i was able to drive i would start to go to amoeba music a lot in hollywood if you're familiar yeah i like cd shopping there yeah and i would start to realize i never really went to hollywood as a kid and there's really not that much out there if you know you're in a family living in the suburbs there's not much of a reason like we would go to like a theater show or something occasionally a musical and you would go to LA but we didn't travel to LA that much because there wasn't that much in in what my parents wanted to do there mm-hmm. but yeah I, I've gone to LA a lot more you know LA proper like Hollywood and that area a lot more as I've gotten older to try and appreciate it and see it because it's been so close and all the other valley kids that I went to school with that I'm still friends with say the same thing as me that that it was so close and they really never went there it's probably for the better yeah 
every time I go to LA, I just, uh, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable. Something about it. Yeah. There's some energy there. I, I, I like LA from afar. I'm really happy, you know, because it's my home. I have that connection. Yeah. But I, I've never had the urge to move back because mm. of the culture, the temperature, the traffic. The traffic is getting bad here too. But I, I don't know. It's a different experience here. I really like it in the Bay. In some ways, you're a performer as well. You play music. You're, you're in a couple bands and yeah. do your thing. Were you always a, a performer as, as a young age? I, I always liked, At a young age? I, I still I still like attention. I've always liked attention. Does it have to do with you being the baby, like the youngest? I, I don't know if it's an age thing. Maybe. I'm the youngest of my family on my mom's side, too. Like, the youngest out of the cousins, out of everyone. Maybe it's part of that. I've never really thought about my age having to do with it. But my grandfather was very interested in humor. He would tell jokes a lot, too. He would get them from joke books and emails. So I would give him a hard time because he never created his own jokes. But he um, loved that. Well, I should say, shouldn't say he loved. He's currently alive. He's old man, very nice. 90, 91? Yeah. yeah. And, and he's still, still not, not he's doing still, his own material? He's still telling bad jokes that he heard from the internet. And I give him a hard time. I was like, come up with your own jokes. You're gonna... <laughs> what, what constitutes yeah. a bad joke? What constitutes... In your opinion. I, um, yeah, mm, a predictable punchline, not being creative. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. I think we've just my whole family has associated his jokes as as bad jokes, and um, I always get compared to him, and <laughs> I, I I get a little bothered because I say, I tell everyone. I create, like, I make up my comedy from, from you know, experiences and, you know, puns. I try and work out the language. Yeah. He's just reading something online. Don't don't group us together. That's not fair. I'm working hard to be funny. Maybe he's working hard, too. I, should, yeah. I shouldn't assume, but yeah. either way. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm in the shadow of my grandfather's comedy is the moral of the story. Well, how bad can the jokes be if they've been published in a book? You know, I mean, I mean an editor I, must have read it and ha, approved it. Have you read joke books from like the fifties and sixties? It's uh, oh, that far back, <laughs> like that too, and like everything you can imagine. Yeah. His favorite yeah. joke is the something called the foot foot joke, and there's like bears, and there's he's gonna be so ashamed if he ever hears this that I don't know the whole joke because we walk away whenever he meets he meets like a new uh, girlfriend in the family a new boyfriend in the family some new ears and yeah. he has to tell that joke yeah. and everyone in the family said like taps the person the new the new potential family member and says you're on your own and walks away yeah, yeah and yeah. it's like something about bears and the bears or something and then something about one foot in the grave I don't even really understand what what but does one foot in the grave mean like you're like halfway to like I yeah what does one foot in the grave actually mean I'm trying to work it out I've, I've heard no the phrase idea. so many times it's like you're pretty you're, you're pretty much uh you know dancing with death in some way I, I, th I, would assume. I think so and yeah so I never really understood the joke too much yeah. but I, some of his jokes I just only but sigh well then in yeah. that case what do you feel he feels why would he want to do that then if you feel like people are not being receptive ah that's a good question so is he doing comedy for himself in this case I think uh, same as myself uh, same as me come on grammar I'm very ashamed of myself right now um, same as me um, I think he does comedy for the reaction of the people regardless of if it's positive or negative I think that happens with a lot of comedians true yeah 
but I, I do want to commend and, and appreciate my both my grandparents from my mom's side for introducing me to a lot of the comedy. It wasn't just my parents. I remember going and watching a lot of Mel Brooks movies on VHS. I watched Blazing Saddles when I was like seven or eight years old. And if you've seen Blazing yeah. Saddles, I watched it when I was seven or eight. And then yeah. I probably watched it again when I was nine and ten and eleven. Every time we would go over there, we would yeah. watch a Mel Brooks movie. Uh-huh. So I do appreciate that. I, that's a lot of the comedy... The Jewish comedy I got was from my parents, was from my grandparents. Were they Woody Allen fans? My my mother and my oldest brother are Woody Allen fans. I've watched some of his stuff through through them, but I haven't watched a lot of it. Maybe because I can feel I'm Woody Allen too much with that nebbish like yeah. apology and you know yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's too relatable. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. Do you like Woody Allen at all? Yeah, you? yeah, I do enjoy his work, yeah. and uh, I do enjoy his film work as well. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, how about roasting? Because roasting is a pretty big part of the Jewish comedic, you know, culture in some way. Yeah, I wonder. I feel in like some ways Jewish comedy t- is more roasting roasting yourself. It's very self deprecating Jewish comedy. Self deprecating and kind of you know, t- also going after people, kind of t- trying to take them down a notch. Really, I, I always thought of it more as self-deprecating. But again, I'm not aware of like all Jewish comedy. I'm trying to think if there's, yeah, I think in like friendly groups they probably have that idea of they're self-deprecating, but then they also go after after really close friends and yeah. things like that. Because I mean, if yeah. we're, ta- we're talking about culture and comedy here. I mean, like for example, for a lot of Latin Americans, yeah, I, there's not that many self-deprecating. Interesting. Self-deprecating humor is actually looked down upon a bit. Oh really? Okay. So, and, and that's why you know when you see a lot of uh, Mexican or Latin comedians, yeah. they're they're usually that Bugs Bunny character of like, oh you know, and I did okay. this, and this guy you know, I have to deal with this thing and and that thing, and why don't people you know, they have to be a elevated person who who's smarter, yeah, and and, and somewhere's um mas chingon, uh, yeah, which really means like you know badass in some yeah. way, yeah, but but it's interesting how how comedy can you know be different to different cultures because mm-hmm. if, a, if a Mexican yeah. you know at a party starts doing stuff to bring in jokes people are like what the fuck? what's this guy in the party why is he even here he's yeah. a Debbie Downer yeah if I, I think of the most like obvious the, the people are probably going to complain if I if I call Gabriel Iglesias a Mexican comedian he is Mexican but I feel like there's probably better ones but yeah it seems like Gabriel Iglesias when I think back to a lot of his work I, I like him I think he's quite funny is he seems to be the hero in the situations. And he has his friend Martin that he always talks about, yeah. who's the one who messes it up, and he kind of has to fix things, like you're saying. I, I'm seeing that, that it's not so much what he's doing wrong, it's what his friends are doing wrong and his reaction to, did they really just say that? Yeah. And I have to clean up this mess now? <laughs> is that is that kind of the idea that it's you're talking there, about? It's getting there. But although, yeah. in some ways, uh, Gabriel Glass is a bit... Yeah, even him, actually, now I think about it, because it's not yeah. so much that he's, he's saying... You know his problems because he's you know at the time you know obese. Yeah. But if he's celebrating it, you know, it's like well, there's fluffy, there's this, and we're we're this kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, he doesn't put himself down too much for his weight. That's most of his focus. He, he does address his rare. weight, but he never really like talks about it in a negative way. Yeah. 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 Like for me, growing up, my biggest comedic hero was yeah. George Lopez. Okay. As a, another Latino performer, yeah, who was big. Definitely. And even his jokes, you know, he's. He's making fun of his family. He's making fun of yeah. others, you know. But doesn't really make fun of himself. 
Yeah, we, we watched George Lopez in class as well because I wanted to address this idea of we watched the most stereotyped comedy imaginable. So George Lopez does some stand-up. He talks about his parents. He talks about his parents, uh, you know, physically hitting him uh, as, you know, a way to reprimand them for doing something bad or um, going drunk to a party and then uh, the kids having to, like, drive the parents home or they drive drunk home. All of these things that are seen as stereotypes. And, you know, the audience is laughing and he's telling all of these jokes. And so I asked the class, is it justifiable and productive for a comedian like George Lopez who comes from a community that he identifies as Mexican to be able to do make these jokes is it justifiable and productive for him to have this type of comedy mm -hmm. because is he perpetuating his own false stereotypes against his own people thus continuing to marginalize a group mm -hmm. and so I, I wanted to hear from my class and ask that question and so, so what do you think with a comedian like George Lopez, because he does perpetuate certain stereotypes, sometimes negative stereotypes, uh -huh. is, is he marginalizing a community that might already feel like they don't have enough power at times? What's the most common answer you get from your classrooms? That's, see, it's, it's such a controversial thing that I get such mixed responses, but overall what I hear is we talk about this idea of community and communities we identify with. And a lot of them say, if someone comes from a community, so they, and, and then I say, what does it mean to come from a community, right? We ask all these questions and they say, you have experience in the community. And I say, well, what does it mean to have experience in the community? How do you have to be there for a year? Let's say <laughs> I, I moved to Mexico right. and I live in Mexico for a year or 10 years. Do I become part of the Mexican community? Right. Some Mexicans would say, no, you have to be born into it. Okay. Right. Let's say someone was born in Mexico and moves to, I don't know, Japan. Mm-hmm. Are they part of the Mexican community if they were only ethnically Mexican? Right. And maybe nationally Mexican. Maybe they still have a passport. What community? And then can others tell you that you're not a part of the community? Mm -hmm. We talked about Malibu's Most Wanted. Are you familiar with yes. the film? Yeah. It's a, actually a great tool to use in class, this idea of in-group and out-group perceptions. So for people that aren't familiar, maybe I'll say something basic sure. about it. Malibu's Most Wanted is about a white rapper from Malibu who wants to become a rap star. And he goes, uh, he gets, ends up getting kidnapped and he goes to Compton to try and pursue part of his rap career and things like that. And this idea of he comes from Malibu and his group, his community of Malibu perceives him as belonging to them. He himself does not perceive him uh, being a part of this community. He thinks he's an outgroup of the white Malibu community. He thinks he belongs in the rap community in Compton. And it's this idea of, are other people allowed to tell you what community you belong to? Mm -hmm. Or do you have the final say, this idea of gatekeeping? Right. And same thing with the kidnappers. The kidnappers are, are two guys who are ethnically black but they identify with Juilliard in this high society. And it's this idea of stereotyping that um, they're seen and automatically grouped in this Compton community because of the way they're perceived by other people. Mm -hmm. And again, they're being told that they belong to this community. They have to act like this to be able to act and kidnap him. And they don't think they belong to this community. They're just acting while others think they are part of this community. And it's that idea of can can others decide for you where you belong mm -hmm. or can you decide where you belong? And thus, if you say something 
uh, comedically, stereotypically, and somebody doesn't think you belong there, maybe just the way you look or the way you dress or the way you speak, are they allowed to tell you that you're not a part of that community or that you don't have enough experience in that community? And I don't really have an answer to any of this. It's yeah. just an And the question thought. is, who are they? Who are these gatekeepers that determine? Yeah. Right? Now, the most amazing thing you said there is you actually made uh, the movie Malibu Most Wanted seem like a good movie. <laughs> Yeah, I don't necessarily think <laughs> that it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. I've only no, really we made watched it. Sound it. Very good. But yeah, yeah, but you, but you, but you bring up some great questions to kind of tackle yeah. here. Uh, I mean, starting off with George Lopez, you asked me about like, do you feel? Do I feel first of all, yeah. the, the idea of comedy productive that itself. I don't know. There, there's some friction there. That I'm yeah. like, can comedy be productive? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't think if it's really. I think comedy in some way is meant to point out certain things. But in no way do I feel comedy is a call of action. Okay. I, I mean, at least that's how I'm determining what productivity yeah. is being used in context here. Mm-hmm. I'm getting, are we playing your bag? I'm, I'm getting water, sorry. Oh, okay. I didn't mean I to like, be oh. so ominous. <laughs> I just, I was getting quite thirsty from speaking. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, and going to George Lopez, it, and actually I was going to say at the time was, well, you know, as much as a lot of ethically charged comedies look down upon, they 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 work. I've seen it work in ethnic groups. Is is that because the groups that the audiences that are viewing it are audiences that have the same experiences? Is that relatability? Possibly, but I've also seen it work when it's a white performer doing it to a ethnic group. Hmm. So it's and it, 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 yeah. it kind of goes you know with a bigger picture of what I was going to bring up later uh, about how certain people are trying to use sciences and comedy and kind of and just like the book we talked about at the yeah. dinner yeah. um the humor code yeah uh, and it's where you know kind of saying comedy is this comedy is that if he does it but it's like there's so many situations where it, it comedy transcends all these rules or principles mm-hmm. and sometimes funny is just funny yeah and sometimes it's a one-time you know thing where it's a moment that may never be you know uh happen again but the big picture when it comes to identity and comedy, it's like, in some ways, does George Lopez get a pass for the jokes? In some ways, yeah. In some ways, because we believe he came from that community. Yeah. And the way he describes it and the way he acts it out, it's so much relatable because we've gone through that. I've gone through that. I, I like that you know idea that you said we believe like the I know, audience. I know I'm because th- that's a bad way of putting it. I'm not speaking yeah. for all Mexicans here. No, no, no. I, I didn't mean I didn't mean to. I wasn't trying to say it that way. Yeah. I meant it more along the lines of the audience has to believe it. Yes. Let's say you know the person doesn't look Mexican but grew yeah. up in Mexico, has yeah. Mexican fan right? The color of your skin. Uh, Trevor Noah, the it's comedian, a, talks yeah. about that all the yeah. time. It, essentially, if we're talking about comedy, comedy, yeah. it does it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And I think this has to do with watching comedy in 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 person. Yeah. Uh, there's a difference seeing comedy through your TV screen or your computer screen and seeing it in person. Yeah. When you're in there in the same room as this performer, and you make these jokes of you know whatever they are, mm-hmm. and in that moment we see like for example, let's say use the Mexican example. There's a Mexican that was born in Mexico but lived in Japan. Yeah. And he comes to Mexico. And it just depends. It depends how, how he's taking it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is there is no specific, like, yay or nay. It really depends what material is being presented. And, and I hear that a lot. And I think that's why it's so important when people are offended by comedy or bothered by comedy, which they are definitely in 
entitled to be able to to have that feeling yeah. is they need to understand how situational it can be and how they need to be productive with the feedback that they give instead of being angry or upset communicating with these people because if we use phrases which I hear from my students all the time like it depends it's you know situational well then how is this person supposed to understand the situation if you don't know this person's background you're just assuming stereotyping based on the way they look I'm assuming where this person comes from because of who they who I think they are on stage or who I think they are as a person or what I've read on their Wikipedia page not uh, you know not their real experiences or what they're going through mm-hmm. we assume that someone is or isn't a part of a community based on the way we perceive them, not the way they actually are. Right, right. Well, another phenomenon happens here is that sometimes there is a chain reaction that happens where I, I, in some ways, because I kind of seen it in person where with one person finds it offensive, Mm -hmm. makes their case why it's offensive, then others follow along with it Mm -hmm. who initially did not find the material offensive. Yeah. Then it kind of catches fire like that. And it, so, in some ways, it's a very complicated issue because how much responsibility does the performer really have to to cater to those people, to to in general? Like, does he really, like, are we trying to tell people like, no, you can't use this material, no, you can't use these words, no, you can't use these experiences you might have had, and using it for for comedy? I mean. Don't get me wrong, you know, I'm on the other side of that too. Yeah. Where it's like a lot of groups of people who are in not in poor position society are used as punchlines. Mm-hmm. And and that is troubling, of course. But at the same time it's like to call out and just label people offensive, I don't think it's gonna help the situation. Uh, because that that just emboldens like the performer from continuing doing it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did anything in that make sense? Yeah, no, no, it definitely makes sense. But that idea of, you know, saying what the comedian can and can't do, that idea of censorship, what they should or shouldn't say, there's so much, the audience has so much control, especially with uh, how pervasive the internet is in terms of saying what can or can't, careers can be made based on one thing that's said on stage. Uh, and in that the, way, and, and there's one thing that I, I, I didn't, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to really, really make point here that trumps everything. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah, uh, I think Chris Rock said it best. Okay, uh, that a, a comedian is does not want to tell bad jokes. Okay, well, yeah, what is a bad joke? Right, That's, right. right I, I use that well, word as well. And essentially, a bad joke is a joke that does not get a laugh. Okay. See what I'm saying? Yeah. If it, so if a comedian is telling the same joke that's continually not getting laughs. Yeah. Uh, it, somebody who's stable and who's professional at comedy will not do those jokes. Yeah. Like okay, the audience are not in, into it. But sometimes the first time it's said can completely ruin a career. Yes, I, I'm, I'm going to get to that. Okay, great. <laughs> so when people are watching these comedy specials. Yeah. And they don't understand to do a comedy special. You need to do this routine like hundreds of times before you even try to stage it. Yeah. Um, and then when, once the special comes out and then they start you know, saying it's not funny, it's not funny. Well, to a certain degree, they were to, to certain audiences that they performed it to. 
Because yeah. if it wasn't funny, they wouldn't put it in their special. You know? Now, now you mentioned, it's like, people say for the first time, well, that, that's where we're going to come to open mics. Yeah. Because the only way for a performer to be better is to keep practicing. Mm-hmm. And unlike most other performances, a comedian cannot practice at home. They cannot really practice, you know, among peers. Yeah. They have to go out there and they have to do it in front of an audience. Definitely. That's the only way to really get better is to have an audience and, and, and essentially open mics. Yeah. And to, I, I think we have to distinguish when you call out a comedian who's a professional on TV and who's not and who's actually doing it at an open mic. Yeah. Because cause our 10,000 hours, we're calling, you can only do them in five minutes incrementally. Yeah. And so when people, so it's like, there's a certain, I can't say, I want to say ignorance, but it sounds like, well, they're here working on the material. Yeah. And the material will be shitty because good good jokes, bad jokes essentially come from the same place. You know, just like, you know, beautiful waves and stormy waves come from the same ocean. Yeah. But to not allow to have someone the opportunity to try it, I think is a major problem. And I think this is what the great Patrice O'Neill, um, you're familiar with his work, through Bill Burr. <laughs> yeah. I think that's his main point, is yeah. that I'm not defending the joke, I'm defending the, the the intent to make the joke. Okay, yeah. And and especially now with the internet, people can carve out specific audiences. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not like before, where the general you had to you know be catering to the general audience. Mm-hmm. These days, a lot of comedians, comedians are making a career with their specific audience that like their humor. Yeah. Does that mean, and then this question, well, if we don't like their humor, is it fair to try to take him down or her down, although they have a fan base that do enjoy their work? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more about what what lies in the issue is not the way people feel about the comedy, it's how they communicate how they feel about the comedy. And by the end of any of my classes or any of my discussions... I addressed to them even in the beginning that we're never going to come up with an answer, no matter how much time we spend on this, because everyone's values, backgrounds, morals, thoughts, beliefs are all going to be different. And that's fine. That's what makes the world beautiful, but also problematic. It's how we communicate about those differences that makes the issue. Mm -hmm. It's the communication, the reaction that creates the problem, not the interaction itself. So if everyone changes the way that people are welcome to be offended by things, but it's important to discuss to this person, I'm offended for these reasons, you know, delivering and helping them understand and have it being a learning experience instead of a, a, a reprimanding experience. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Because I get offended. Yeah. I'm a performer. I'm a comedian performer. Yeah. I mean, I like to say I do never get offended, but I do occasionally. Yeah. There's moments. But I don't take it as a, you know, as... I mean, I don't know. I feel there's a bit of a fuck you kind of attitude sometimes being applied yeah. to people who get offended. Okay. You offended me. Fuck you. Yeah. You know? So that there's automatic kind of... <laughs> they, they feel hate being pushed at them, so they yeah. push it back as harder, harder. And, and then a comedian goes, yeah. well, I offended you? Well, fuck you. It's like... And it's like there's a there's no dialogue happening. That, yeah, that's, that's you know exactly the problem. And, and can a dialogue really be happening if, you know... I don't know. It's hard. It's very complicated. It is. And, and that's... I, I mostly present the class not to come up with answers, but to tell the community not just my class hopefully it spreads the idea that 
there is a problem that exists in this world and it needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. It's something that exists. We talk about politics. We talk about health care. All these very, of course, important things. But even something as much as entertainment affects the way everything else kind of it has this ripple effect on our culture mm-hmm. we can see how entertainment has changed the way everything else the the feeling the sentiment in the country mm-hmm. entertainment you know although it's used to just entertain us you know to create an enjoyable experience it affects the way we go about our lives and the way we interact with people outside of entertaining experiences in your opinion do you think that's our downfall is a reliance on entertainment to provide so much for us and to at some point even think for us? I, I think our downfall is accepting everything we see at face value. Whether it's offensive or interesting or informative. That what we read is the truth or what we read is exactly what it is without any context. Context is so important in anything. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah based on what we say, based on what we think, based on what we hear, the context is so important. And I think our downfall is not accept it. Well, well, to avoid our downfall, don't accept something that you see at face value, but that doesn't mean that you should say it's automatically wrong either. Take it in, absorb it, understand it, and work with it, but understand that there might need to be more information to be held. And then understand the context and consider things. Instead of, I, I always talk about like proactivity instead of rea- react, rea- reactivity, reactivity. I couldn't find the word. <laughs> proactivity, reactivity, those things. Rather than being so reactive, be proactive and, and understand what's going on with the world. Take a step back before a situation arises so that people don't become so reactive. And don't get me wrong, it's a two-way street. I, yeah. I feel the responsibility that as an as a audience member has, yeah. the, a comedian should have the same responsibility. Yeah. And I think one thing that really annoys me is in the industry or just in general, even in the comedy community, is there's comedians who don't don't see that responsibility they have mm-hmm. or don't care for it. Yeah. And that's where you got to distinguish what kind of performer this guy or girl is. It's like, yeah. are they really taking this seriously or are they just doing that for themselves? Yeah. And and sometimes uh, a lot of great humor gets, you know, like you said, you know, the a lot of bad stuff, good stuff just gets swarmed around. Yeah, it's it's that weird responsibility that happens in the entertainment industry like actors who think that they uh, need to have a platform to talk about uh, social inequities or rights of some kind, which again they're welcome to do. But I think a lot of people in the entertainment industry have a pressure, and I don't know if they should have that pressure. I I, I try not to formulate a lot of opinions no, when I talk. Nobody about this should stuff. have pressure to do anything they don't want to do. I yeah, I guess that's a good point. That that idea of gatekeeping. If you're an actor or if you're a comedian, you have to do this. Yeah. That I, I think it co- all comes back to gatekeeping yeah. in communities or, or positions that if you fit this role as a job or in a community, you have to be these things or you have to do these things. Yeah. And I think it should be up to the individual to decide as long as they're not harming other people. Then we see this whole aspect of marginalization and how it gets perpetuated through this. And it's just this endless cycle of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I truly think- don't know. Perhaps we're reading into things a little, a little bit too much. Do you think? I yeah. I I, it's I, I. So all of this is so hard, and and then I find like as I reflect myself um, on on everything that I've gone through, and you know I've c- growing up Jewish, I, I received plenty of jokes my way, mm. right? 
And looking back, I feel like, okay, so how offended was I by these things? And then I started to think I really was not very offended by any of the jokes I received, mostly because they were repetitive, things I didn't identify with, things I didn't hold true, things that were inaccurate, blatantly. And then I started to think, okay, so why did I, why was I not offended by it? But then I started to think, okay, as a white male, I had that idea of privilege. I have this power. I didn't feel marginalized being Jewish. I didn't feel marginalized because I had this these other characteristics. And I think it comes back to that idea of people become offended because they're, and, and maybe there's other reasons, but I'm starting to reflect on my own personal experiences from when people feel they don't have power and then somebody else is making fun of them and then they feel like they have even less power, they're being even more marginalized, that's when the, the offense happens. And because I never felt like I didn't have power mm-hmm. in, in a significant way, and, and I'm thankful for that and pri- privileged for that, I was not often offended by the humor. And I think when people say that they're not offended by humor, ever or you know come on it's just a joke i think a lot of those people come from aspects of privilege in one way or another in one shape or another where they felt they had enough power sure yeah from my own personal experiences i think that's what is and would you say when you did feel offended by jokes that it was about feeling a lack of power control in that situation or was it something else i mean reflecting on it i think you hit in the no yeah i think there's scenarios when i I mean because when i hear let's say you know a joke that's towards me and of my ethnicity yeah. from a friend or from somebody who's on my like classmate didn't bother me, but if it came from you know from a boss or from like you know some someone in in some sort of power, yeah, it's like what the fuck, like, yeah. wait, like why you gotta go that route? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you, you because I already feel like yeah. I'm under your thumb, like. Why make this awkward for us? Exactly. That idea of certain, you can say that, or, you know, I can say that, but you can't say that type of thing. And, and it comes with that idea of power. And it has to do with relationships as well. Like, sure. you know, what kind of relationship do you have with the other person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. All right, I'm going to change uh, direction. Sure, please. You got pretty heavy. I, I, I get I get so, I'm just, I just love what I do so much. And I yeah. get into this, like, teaching mode. And my tone of voice even changes. And Yeah. But okay. but the great yeah, thing please. about you is that you're also an author. Yeah. You put out I a am. children's book. I did. <laughs> the Floppy Fantastic San Francisco Friday. How's that for a title? Yeah. Uh, can, can I plug my illustrator for a moment? Because sure. without my illustrator, I would be nothing. I want to say that. So if anyone needs art work graphic design uh elena bolshova i think her instagram is like artichoke art elena artichoke art something like that uh she wanted to bring a vegetable into the mix uh-huh. uh, and i gave i helped her out with a tagline because uh english is her second language but she's been here for quite some time i told her uh, she didn't know that artichokes had heart like artichoke hearts yeah so i told her her artichoke art I, I told her she should make the tagline art with heart or something or putting the heart back in art or you know so some silly thing but that's, with, that's your pun side yeah exactly it's my pun side but I, I i really wanted to plug her because without her the my 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 dream and my imagination would have been nothing mm-hmm. and yeah so it is called dr professor regina shoop cuddles esquire dds and the floppy fantastic san francisco friday oh so this wasn't even the full title no um and okay. that is actually the real name of my rabbit i have a real life rabbit you can find her on my instagram regina's human and um her real name is dr professor regina shoop cuddles esquire dds because she went, I got her in grad school, so she decided to pursue a uh-huh. life of academia as well. She goes by Regina for short. 
Okay. <laughs> and it's about her adventure in San Francisco. There's a lot of in, uh, alliterations, as you can see, the floppy, fantastic San Francisco Friday, all those Fs in there. And it's a very alliterative thing, uh, and it was a fun project to go through. Well, what made you want to do it in the first place? Um, okay, so I, I need to give credit to my mother, because if not, she'll never she'll never let me live it down. You know, one, I think one time uh, I, I didn't give her full credit, and I didn't hear the end of it. And it, it is truly, she, she inspired me. One day I was on the phone with her, and she said, you, you like to write, you have a rabbit with a crazy name, why don't you write a story about her? And so I said, okay, and so I wrote it. And then I went through this whole process. I um, actually found my illustrator through Craigslist, and I and I got about fifty to sixty submissions. I got a very large amount of submissions on Craigslist. Wow. Yeah, and they were all very honest submit. Well, I should say mostly honest submissions. And I, I wanted to see how their art. I interviewed them. I wanted to see if they would be willing to be a partner instead of being someone that I would hire. Because I wanted to partner with someone to feel it was an equal experience that we would both be learning from the experience. Mm -hmm. And the moment I met Elena, I knew that she would be perfect to work with. And I really liked her art and her thought process and her passion and her compassion and all of those things. Mm. So yeah, so. It was recommended, and I just, I, I've been at a point in life, I've listened to a lot of podcasts as well. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Chris Hardwick's Nerdist now called the ID10T podcast, mm -hmm. he talks about doing a thing all the time. And I just kept thinking, like, why? I have so many ideas, and everyone in the world has so many great ideas, but our biggest downfall is not doing them, talking about them, but not doing them. So I try not to talk about them as much as I try to do them. And that it's just that spontaneity of trying to see something all the way through. What are some challenges in trying to create a book that caters to children? That is a great question. I learned that from uh, the first experience. We're working on our second book right now, which I think is is uh, going to be... I, I'm trying to tailor it towards the Bay Area itself. The first one has that Bay Area theme, but I... I, I started to look at the families and the communities here and how it's all changing and I'm seeing that idea of I want to create something kind of like what we talked about with comedy that's for me and for for the community that I'm in and and I think that is part of the challenge is doing something that you think is true to your own voice and your own interests and your own passion but at the same time speaking to the community and that comes back with any creativity that you want to be marketable but also to be meaningful so yeah, making it not only for yourself but for others—that balance that you that you recommended and pointed out—and it's not easy. Yeah, not that, easy. and that's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the biggest challenge is balancing it so that you feel like your voice is still there, right. but also so that you're speaking and allowing other people to have those voices and and make it useful to them and yeah. meaningful to them. How how is the process creating this book? Yeah, that was fun. Actually, uh, you gave me a copy right here. Yeah, I did. I like how it's so big. Thank you. Yeah, we went we it, went it, almost it, eight and a half by eleven, or it might be. Well, it's big and thin. Yeah, and I, I think it kind of reminds me when I was a kid. I like these kind of books. Yeah, it's available on Amazon for anyone that's interested. I got I got to do it, and in a few bookstores as well in the Bay Area. There's some bookstores that are carrying it in San Francisco and Mountain View, and uh, I think Berkeley as well. Then again, a lot of children's books are essentially big. Yeah, why do you think that is? I well, do, do children like the tactile bigger things? Well, that I, I think that tactile ability for children to hold on to it and to right. see it and to interact with it and feel it. And as an adult, the only yeah. thing I want are small books. I just want information, easier, right? Well, easy to carry around. You yeah. Know? 
That's pretty funny. Yeah, children are, are want the pictures, right? The bright colors to see everything there. These are nice small. pictures, dude. Wow. Yeah, that's the why illustrations I, are like really like great. I wanted to make sure to recommend her before anything. Forget about forget about me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you 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 were asking about the process? Yeah, in creating the story, and, yeah. and then how how do you direct certain images to go with certain text? Yeah. So what we what we did originally was. Um, well, I created the story. Then I, I created a post on Craigslist, oddly enough. I interviewed people. I found her, and I began to work with her. So the story was ran before any illustration was, was drawn? There were minor modifications made, but yes, right. that is correct. I okay. wrote the story, and, and I made minor And what's the story kind of based on? So it's about my rabbit, a very well-educated rabbit. So she's... Um, she's the rabbit has more degrees than I have. She has more degrees than I have as well. <laughs> much, much more. She's very talented. A very I'm very proud of her. rabbit. Yeah, she's very talented. So it's about your rabbit. Yeah, and um, she uh, actually works as a toll booth attendant on the Golden Gate Bridge. That well, is her she job. She has all those degrees and she's working in the toll booth? Well, she got a PhD in toll booth sciences and Dude, currency I'm sorry. I don't know, I, I don't know why I'm making you defend your, your <laughs> character. I'm sorry. No, it's a good question. So she has a PhD in... Uh, That's very rude of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, she has a PhD in toll booth I, I, sciences. I just want her to succeed in life. She, well, she's very successful she put and in. happy. <laughs> you know? Good. But I, I have to pay the rent for her, so... So, so, so she's a very noble. You know, she understands yeah. her, her role as yeah. a toll booth and how much great help she has. She does. Yeah, exactly. I get it. And one day she has an adventure in San Francisco after work. So she begins, She run, she's running to work on the Golden Gate Bridge. And of course, they don't have toll booth attendants anymore on the Golden Gate Bridge now. So my joke about the sequel, which is not actually happening, is she gets unemployed and how she works through that. <laughs> That's dark a for children's I, book. It's oh, not going to no, happen. Why not? They need the darkness. You know, children need to know that life is not all about rainbows. Maybe I'll consider it after the second book we're working on, Unrelated. Um, so Can you imagine you put out a book about an unemployed, my unemployed rabbit with educated. so many degrees under it? That would be very relatable for yes, people my age. I'm, I'm telling you. Yeah. I think I think there's potential here. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. I'm so, sorry. No, 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 no worries. So she has an adventure in San Francisco, and I document it. So she goes to, like... Um, what are all the big spots? The Golden Gate Bridge. She goes to Treasure Island. She mm. goes to Alcatraz. She goes to Lombard Street. She runs up Lombard Street because and it's hopping up it and does this nice little body flop at the end because she's so happy and exhausted and uh-huh. all these fun imagery. She goes uh, to Chinatown and has some dim sum. Uh, so essentially she's touring the, the yeah, city. exactly. For, for the children. And I heard the cutest story ever. I, I wish that they had documented it, but it was... A friend's, a family friend's friend, that uh, from LA got the book. Like it was given, it was like passed from one person to another as a gift. And this family goes up to San Francisco with my book, and goes to every spot and brings the book and points to the, the little kid that's along. Oh. It's like this is where Regina went. And I'm like, oh my god, that's so cute. Wow, that's. I felt really wow. special for. Yeah. Yeah, I wish they had documented it, but I don't think they took any pictures, you know, with the book there. And but that's such a cute experience, like using yeah. it as like a tour guide, a map to go all around that's San Francisco with like Regina. The highlight of a writer in some way. Right? Yeah, I felt really good about it, and I was like, oh, <laughs> do go on. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. So, oh, oh, I. So I, the story. Yeah. Is pretty much a rabbit touring the town. Yeah, it's her her adventure in San Francisco and just having fun. She eats a lot. That's mm. that's part of it. Not real rabbit food. I don't recommend. No, I, I I urge you not to feed your rabbits anything that my my fictional uh, my real rabbit does not eat any of the things that the fictional version of her 
has yeah, eaten. These are more human foods. It'd be kind of weird to see a rabbit eating a cheeseburger. Yeah, she she does have a sourdough bread bowl and clam chowder huh. um, at the bakery uh, <laughs> at Fisherman's Wharf, and uh, I do not recommend that anyone's rabbits. No, I do. I urge nobody to feed their rabbits sourdough bread bowls or clam chowder. I will be very I, I, unhappy I with you. I feel like you should put like uh, uh, a. I, uh, a hazard uh, uh, disclaimer. disclaimer on your book. If you look don't in the feed, back... Don't feed your rabbit whatever this rabbit's If you eating. look in the back, one of the last few pages, I actually have something that, that talks about how rabbits are, are something... Uh, the, the next page. The, the next page, the other way. <laughs> I think it's in between those two. You gotta oh. flip between it. But that this kind of disclaimer that... If you want, is that your real rabbit? Yeah, that's my real rabbit. So, ladies and gentlemen, and anybody who identifies in between, his illustration book actually has a picture of his real rabbit in it. It's so cute. It's about the author. Would you please read the about the rabbit, not the about the author part? It's the the top one. one. Yeah. Let's see. Oh God, I'm gonna mess up the The one at the top. Uh, Doctor Professor Regina Shoopcuddles, Esquire, DDS, has spent many years working binking. Yeah, it's a rabbit jump and twist when they're really excited. It's a term, a rabbit term. I, I, I don't know there was a word for it. Yeah, it's a rabbit term. Thinking and flopping in the academic and professional world. She is a four-year-old Hollenlop uh, rabbit yeah. who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her favorite cuisines are Mexican, cilantro, Italian, parsley, and Mediterranean mint. She has been known to crawl into someone's lap if they were eating an apple can contact her by eating an apple the scent will lure her quite quickly yeah okay <laughs> i just i just thought people would want to hear about the rabbit and all of her favorite cuisines and my my favorite part about that was the contact information because i have like my email and my about the author and about the illustrator but for the rabbit i'm like what contact information is she gonna have wait doesn't your rabbit have an instagram account uh yeah i guess but i've run it so i i thought if they were to eat well, people, an kids apple, won't know Oh, Kids won't know. You just okay. direct them to the Instagram account. You know, get true. get more followers. And I think I oh, did I not put their Instagram in there? I wonder. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Okay. But I, I pitched it. Regina's human on mm-hmm. Instagram. You can find us there. It's just her eating most of the time. I, I take videos of feeding her new things, new green things. I have an Instagram series called Put Something Green in Regina's Belly, which I find a different green vegetable. You're really close to this rabbit, aren't you? I care very much about Regina. She and I are she and I are best buds. I've had her I've had her for five years. Yeah. Uh Yeah. We're very close. Well, Brian, it's uh it's been over an hour. Great, I had fun. Great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. I feel feel it's very very insightful. Thank you. A lot to a lot of food for thought. Yeah, I appreciated you uh, and, and all of your thoughts as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, but uh, where can people follow your work? And um, that's a, that's a If they want to take a class of yours, where can they go enroll? Uh, Foothill College, San Francisco. Oh, no, San Jose State. I, I keep forgetting which schools I teach at. Mm-hmm. Foothill College right now, maybe San Jose State. Just look for me, Brian Hoffer. You can find me anywhere in the Bay Area. Uh, find me on Rate My Professor. I don't know. Do you read that stuff? I, you know, I, I guess I have to be honest. I do read that stuff right now because it's so important in the beginning that 
I have this likability in class yeah. and um, because my, my career kind of depends on how I'm perceived by students. And also I think it's important for students to be honest and give feedback so that I can better tailor my instruction and my body language towards their needs and blah, blah, blah. blah. I gotta confess, I did, I did check your rate, my professor, and yeah. some, but a lot of people rated a chili pepper, meaning yeah. you're, you're, you're attractive. That's, that's my bragging point, is that I have a chili pepper. <laughs> I, I, I have to say that's my bragging point. I'm like, yeah, I have a chili pepper. But can people follow you on social media anything like that do you yeah, are you okay I, with that yeah i have instagram they're welcome to follow me on instagram i think i have a facebook page called like brian hoffer lit mm-hmm. um i don't i haven't used it too much as of late i'm hoping to publish some more things in the near future as well and where can they purchase your book ah great uh they can purchase it on amazon is the easiest way so i think if you search dr regina rabbit that should be enough to find it rather than Dr. Professor Regina Shoop Cuddles Esquire DDS and the Floppy Fantastic San Francisco Friday. Dr. Regina Rabbit should be enough to be able to find it or Floppy Fantastic Friday. Cool. Yeah. All right, Brian, pleasure having you here. Yeah, thank you. Once again, please check out his children's book on Amazon titled Dr. Professor Regina Shoop Cuddles Esquire DDS and the Floppy Fantastic San Francisco Friday. There's some really great illustrations and it's a fun book to read. All right, that's it. That's a, the 150th episode in the can. 150 hours out there, give or take, of JMS podcast goodness. I hope you all enjoy the break. I'll be back very soon. I will be active on social media. So it's a good incentive to follow the JMS podcast on social media. I got some videos coming the way. And there's no excuse why you shouldn't. If you enjoy the show, you're going to enjoy the, uh, the social media. Uh, I'll definitely be available there. And please don't forget to send me an email at jmspodcast.gmail.com for any questions or concerns. All right. Sayonara. I'm heading to the beach.